Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. As DeFi platforms have become more popular with crypto investors, they've also become more attractive to cyber criminals. In this episode, my colleague Beth Bisbee and I discuss a recent attack on the Badger DAO that resulted in thieves stealing assets worth $120 million. This attack's particularly interesting because the compromise came via a flaw in Web2 infrastructure supporting the popular Web3 platform. During the discussion, we unpack the investigative process and the technical methods employed by the attackers. Please note that BadgerDAO is a Chainalysis customer. And if you enjoyed the content in this podcast, then you should absolutely join us in person May 18th and 19th for the Chainalysis Links Conference in New York City. We'll bring together leaders and experts from all parts of the cryptocurrency ecosystem for beginner to advanced content on DeFi, NFTs, Web3, crypto crime, compliance, and risk management. To register, visit the URL link in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by one of my amazing colleagues, Beth Bisbee, head of U.S. investigations for the Chainalysis team. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ian. Now, Beth, we've got a bunch of interesting topics to touch on today, but one of my personal favorites is running. Now, I understand you're a bit of a runner. I think you're probably faster than me. Are you training for anything particular right now? Yeah, no, I'm actually not training for anything, just running right now for fun. But yeah, I I do have extensive background. I ran in college, so I have a true passion for it. And I, I understand that you just did the uh, cherry blossom. I did, actually. I had an experience that I've never had happen before. I ran a pretty fast race for me, crossed the finish line, and had to find a trash can immediately. Just let loose all my breakfast, uh, which I took as a sign I was actually working hard. It was great to be back in person. That race has not happened for a couple of years with the pandemic. And there was a huge crowd. It was 20,000 people and perfect weather. So it was, it was a ton was of perfect fun. that morning. Perfect yeah. weather. <laughs> so we, we've got to find a race to run together. That'll, that'll be something we'll pull off in the near future. Definitely. The thing I'm interested in is I love hearing people's crypto origin story. And I think you came to crypto in a pretty interesting way. Maybe you could share some of your recent background and and how you found your your way into the world of cryptocurrency. Yeah, so my background started within crypto back in 2014. And I was actually working for the Drug Enforcement Administration. And I was working a traditional money laundering investigation and section. And um, one of our requests came in, and it happened to be a Bitcoin address. And at the time, nobody knew what Bitcoin was. And my supervisor at the time was like, hey, does anybody want to take this case? And I was the first to raise my hand, not knowing that it would take me on this wonderful journey of where I am. And so through the years within the Drug Enforcement administration, I supported many cryptocurrency investigations and kind of paved the way for um, how the government in general investigates cryptocurrency and how to look at it from a policy standpoint, as well as just investigatively. And then that led me to my uh, second career, if you will, at Chainalysis, where I now head the U.S. of uh, investigations for the Chainalysis investigations and special programs team. That's amazing. So if you hadn't raised your hand with this weird cryptocurrency address lead came in, life might have taken a totally different path. 
Uh huh. No, definitely. And I don't think it would be as fun as this path that I'm on. So. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, is a traditional money laundering case even exciting anymore after you've been in crypto for a while? Oh, definitely not. It doesn't, it pales in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, today we were going to chat about a, an investigation you were recently a part of. Everybody has probably uh, heard about or uh, read about some of the, the attacks that have been happening in DeFi. There's so much value locked in many of these protocols. I think they've become really attractive targets. We've seen some uh, massive numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in recent exploits. Uh, the one in particular I was hoping to, to learn more about today was an organization uh, known as Badger Dow. And they engaged your team to help solve an attack that they suffered. Can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about Badger Dow? They weren't they weren't an organization I was deeply familiar with until we we had the opportunity to start working with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like you, I didn't really know what Badger Dow was until we were engaged with them. So to kind of walk through what Badger Dow does is that they're primarily looking to bring Bitcoin to the decentralized finance space. So also known as DeFi. So the whole premise of DeFi is to bring financial instruments without relying on intermediaries such as brokerages, exchanges, or banks, and by using smart contracts on the blockchain. So traditionally speaking, in order to move from Bitcoin to DeFi, exchanges were the primary on-ramp. So what Badger DAO does is actually create that ramp for users into the DeFi space. Badger DAO users can actually deposit their Bitcoin into a wrapped Bitcoin token, which then holds the value of a one-to-one within the Bitcoin that's held on Badger's vault. The users can then use the wrapped Bitcoin that they transferred in and um, use that those tokens all throughout DeFi. Oh, interesting. So for people that maybe are a little less familiar with DeFi, most or maybe all of DeFi is happening within Ethereum or what are known as EVM-based chains, Ethereum virtual machine-based chains. Bitcoin, even though it's the most valuable digital asset at a platform level, really doesn't have that smart contract layer in the same way that's developed around Ethereum and, and Ethereum-like chains. If I play back to you what Badger does, they allow me as someone that holds Bitcoin to convert my asset into something that I can now use on the Ethereum chain. Exactly. Okay. And so that means that they're potentially holding lots of money locked up in a vault that has some tight controls around how funds can be transferred in and out because I'm depositing one asset and I'm getting back a different asset that's now on a different blockchain. Correct. And also because they hold the value for a one-to-one. So if you deposit one Bitcoin in, you'll get one wrapped Bitcoin token. So there has to be a vault to hold that value. Wow. So that seems like an attractive target, right? You know, bank robbers like to rob banks because they've got a physical vault full of paper money, or at least it, they did back in the old days. Now I think it's mostly electronic. But in this case, we've got a, a virtual vault full of virtual money that could be really big sums. No, absolutely. What happened to Badger? Tell us a little bit about the attack and uh, the immediate aftermath. Yeah, so what is interesting about this hack is that it wasn't a hack to the smart contract, nor was it a hack to Badger Dow's governance. 
it actually was an exploit to the front end of BadgerDAO, which makes this a super interesting play of how the two places integrate from what we know, like the real world entities into the blockchain. So to understand what actually happened, what I would like to do is walk you through kind of what a user would have seen for how this exploit actually took place, and then what happened on the hackers front of that. So if we walk through what would have been looked like from a user, when you went to spend funds on a token at a protocol, you will get asked for approval before the transaction is allowed to actually happen. And the MetaMask wallet, which is the interface between you and the blockchain, will present the user with an approval window. In the case of this Badger DAO incident, the approval window appeared and the approval window actually asked for an increase in spend limit. So the user wasn't actually depositing anything and the user wasn't moving any of the funds but the request and spend limit was requested. And many users would just confirm the transaction without actually double checking the smart contract address. I would fall victim to this every single day of the week, right? Like I use MetaMask primarily on a mobile device. So it's kind of a small screen. You get like the first couple characters of a smart contract and it's saying like approve or deny. And it's always a user initiated action, right? So I've I've clicked on something that I'm generally sure a thing that I want to interact with. A lot of times it's not even a token spend. It's simply just authorizing a wallet connect. So I, I can imagine how it would be really difficult for a user to tell the difference between one version of a smart contract and another version, or even understand the exact detail of what's what's happening when I when I click allow. Exactly. And as a user, you trust the platform that you're interacting with, right? So you don't think that there's anything wrong with that. So just like how you and I would have just approved it, many others also did this and they actually fell victim when they selected the approval function for this. So once the user actually approved that spend limit, the malicious smart contract ad address was then able to move that particular token that was approved from the user's wallet. That's how it looks like on the user front. So the user would have no idea that there was something going on with it. If we look at what the hacker actually did to how they were able to actually deploy their address instead of the true bad or dead smart contract address has to do with the ability of the attacker actually gaining access to that front end. How did that actually happen? So what ended up occurring is that the hacker leveraged vulnerability within Cloudflare. Now, Cloudflare is considered to be a serverless application platform that is running on a cloud network. Many platforms utilize this in order to integrate their systems into the infrastructure that Cloudflare offers. So a lot of API keys are generated within Cloudflare. There was actually a vulnerability within Cloudflare that allowed unauthorized users the ability to create accounts and were also able to create and view API keys before email ver verification was actually completed. So you just gave us a bunch of information there. I'm, I want to try and break this down. I'm certainly not as smart as you are on this stuff. So I, I've got a couple of questions. The user has gone to BadgerDAO because they want to deposit Bitcoin so they can receive the wrapped Bitcoin in return that's now on the Ethereum network. And presumably from there, they go off and you know maybe deposit it into a different DeFi protocol where they're earning a yield, let's say. And to do that operation of depositing my Bitcoin that I start with, I've connected a wallet, maybe something like MetaMask or potentially another wallet. And in doing so, I authorized what I thought was the Badger contract. But in fact, 
it was substituted for a different authorization. And so like you and I talked about a moment ago, really hard for an end user to recognize that. And so as you started investigating, it turned out that it wasn't that the legitimate smart contract hadn't been hacked. What actually happened here is someone was able to manipulate the BadgerDAO platform, the application itself, and substitute in something else. So when I clicked that connect or deposit button, I was authorizing something totally else that had nothing to do with with Badger. It didn't come from them at all. And so as you start investigating, it sounds like what we have here is kind of a uh, an escape from Web 3 and a compromise that went back into the, the world of Web 2 in some ways. Because I know Cloudflare is kind of a, a caching layer, you know, Almost everybody I know uses Cloudflare, great platform. They allow for users all around the world to access a website as if it's hosted in their local uh, local country or jurisdiction, get really high performance without everyone that operates a website having to run physical servers all around the world. So they basically cache most of the internet, I would say. So in this case, they had a vulnerability that allowed this malicious attacker to then take advantage of sites that were using Cloudflare. And in this case, they decided they were going to go manipulate something on the Badger platform. Did I follow that correctly? Yeah. And more specifically, how they were able to leverage this is that the attacker actually posed as a developer for Badger. And the way that they were able to do that is that they posed as the developers using the developer's email. This is where the vulnerability exists. So within Cloudflare's vulnerability that was reported on their forum, users had indicated that an individual could actually create and view API keys, which can't be deactivated. And so they were able to do this before like a verification was completed. So typically how the API keys were generated is that you would establish that you needed a request for an API key leveraging an established email. And in this case, it was a a Badger developer email. And then the API key would be initiated before authentication of that account was actually provided. The attacker then had access to the API key before it was actually validated by the end user for that account. That is amazingly sneaky. Very amazingly sneaky. And that vulnerability has since been patched. But one of the things that created with this is that because the attacker used the developer's email, Badger also authenticated it several months later and actually initiated the activation of that API key, which then ensued to what we now know as the attack. That's incredible. So now that I've got this API key, as an attacker, I'm able to manipulate what anyone accessing BadgerDAO is is seeing on the screen. And they chose, instead of complete change of the site, they chose this incredibly minimal alteration that really just had to do with this authorization that users were granting on the smart contract as they were depositing into the BadgerDAO. Yeah, exactly. And how long did this go on from the time the attacker compromised until until it was discovered? Yeah, so what's interesting about it is that the vulnerability that was identified in Cloudflare actually occurred in September of 2021. But then the um, approval that occurred within the Badger DAO system for that developer email that happened in November. And so what the attacker then did is that they would be up on the platform sporadically. 
So it's not like they were on there the entire time. So if you were to look at the Badger Dow postmortem, it actually indicates how long the attacker was on at very increments of time. So sometimes they're on for 24 hours, sometimes they're only on for six hours, sometimes they're only on for a couple hours. The more you tell me, the more I'm thinking we're dealing with a very sophisticated attacker here. This isn't somebody that was sort of casually playing around with some source code in a Git repo and found a, a minor vulnerability. Like this sounds like somebody who's professionally focused on this, if you will. Yeah, and that's exactly what we see too. Somebody that has done scams frequently, um, not somebody that was just like, oh, this is a cool vulnerability, let me see. Like what we saw with the Poly Network hack. It wasn't something that was like that. This is definitely something that um, has proven to be more sophisticated than what we've seen on other hacks. The vulnerability was kind of out there living for a long time. The attacker was intermittently authorizing certain wallets and presumably collecting stolen funds. But at some point, this, this all came to light because the big news story broke. What changed? Yeah, so on December 2nd, the community started seeing a large amount of funds that were actually being moved by the BadgerDAO vault, if you will. And so they alerted BadgerDAO um, and was just like, there's a massive amount that are, are operating right now that this shouldn't be happening. So BadgerDAO started looking into it and they were actually able to freeze or pause a lot of the contracts via the smart contract. So within BadgerDAO, they had set up like a guardian contract so that if something like this happened, it would help prevent what had occurred. But by that time, there were so, so many funds that had already been moved that the hackers still sitting on funds. And what was the total that was, that was stolen? 120 million US dollars. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. <laughs> now, I, ha I have to imagine at the time this happened, I know that Badger came out and said, you know, they'd retained Mandiant, they'd retained Chainalysis, they wanted to get to the bottom of this. It's been a few months since that time. What, what has your team been able to find out about who was behind this? Anything interesting you can share? Yeah, so I can't speak to a lot of um, the investigation components of it as it's still ongoing and we're working with Nor North American law enforcement. But I can say that we were able to identify some pretty interesting components for what happened pre the attack. Some of the things that we were able to identify is the funding addresses in order to initiate those smart contracts that were deployed when the users actually selected to increase the, the spend value. Our attacker had actually leveraged address in order to spend for his contract because to walk back a little bit for, for individuals that may not be aware, in order to initiate smart contracts, you have to have ETH in order to actually initiate those transaction calls. Our attacker actually had funds that he leveraged or they leveraged before. And so we were able to look at some of the transactions that occurred before the hack to kind of build out a story from the blockchain, if you will, of how he was actually able to get those funds. And so we were able to do that with Chainalysis Software Reactor in order to build out that story and provide leads to the law enforcement entities involved. Now that's super fascinating. So this is like in Ocean's Eleven where they have to go get somebody to kind of fund the caper, right? They need to rent all the outfits and the cars and pay off all the all the folks to get access to the vault in the basement of the casino. In this case, our attacker had to have funds to pay to deploy a smart contracts. What did you find out about where where that money originated from? 
So we saw, and this is where I kind of alluded to, we saw that the attacker may have been involved in some previous illicit activities such as other scams and also interacted with some of the other exchanges. And we're also looking with law enforcement and being able to work through that a little bit more. Ooh, so more, more evidence that this wasn't a, a casual attack or an insider or a member of the community, but somebody that was kind of a professionalized criminal. And this just happened to be the maybe their biggest caper, but something that they'd been active in the ecosystem and in uh, fraud cases before. Yeah, and one of the things that we found very interesting about this attack in particular is that on previous attacks or hacks that we've supported in the past is that the um, attacker will use clean addresses and not reuse addresses in the past. And what we found with this one is that there was actual reuse of addresses. So that's why we were able to look at a historical fingerprint of what this attacker actually did because of the rarity of actually having that blockchain footprint. So maybe a professional, but a sloppy one. <laughs> and we like the sloppy ones. <laughs> well, that to me is fascinating. So is there is there an end to the story? You said that it's still ongoing with law enforcement. You know, is there a chance that, that some of these funds are actually recovered? I imagine we can see where the, the funds are on chain or if they, they haven't disappeared, have they? No, they haven't. And so they actually have not been spent. So they still remain dormant. And um, we are actively watching them. So if they do move, we'll be we'll be on it. But what we're working with law enforcement on right now, and and also Badger is being able to look at the historical footprint and be able to piece a lot of that information together. Well, that's amazing. I, I hope for the, the team at Badger and all the, the customers and users of that platform that we're able to get some level of restitution and return of funds. I mean, that would be a terrific outcome if we can if we can help with that. When you think about the whole kind of landscape of investigations, I know Badger was unique in that it was this this Cloudflare vulnerability kind of led to the the entire caper. There's a lot of other ways in which we've seen some of these attacks and thefts progress. From your perspective as an investigator, you know, what changes across these? Like, is there any common pattern of activity or, or approach that you take? Or is, is everyone kind of different when you get started? For like the investigative workflow, we try to look at it in an approach because in instances like this, I mean, it's an incident, right? And so because of that, like a massive response from all parties involved creates almost this like intense time for us to be able to piece everything together. So being able to have a consistent methodology while working on something that is as dramatic as this, we want to be able to establish that workflow that is consistent. So part of that is always understanding where what all the facts are. So what is the timing that this was identified? What protocols are involved? And how is the attack actually employed? Those three components are very important for us because we can typically mirror up a lot of the activity on the blockchain. And so being able to actually walk through what the victim, and in this sense, Badger Dow, of like what they identified, what the community identified, and then also what cybersecurity, such as Mandiant, was able to identify. Yeah. Piece 
piecing all of that together can also help us tell the story on the blockchain. The other aspect that we want to also understand is what are the addresses that are vulnerable? So are there victim addresses? And what are those victim addresses? And then what are the attacker addresses? If the funds haven't moved, then we have more time to actually piece together what that story is of a historical footprint. And in Badger Doubt, it was really, really beneficial for us to be able to do that. In other hacks or attacks, the funds move very quickly. In this instance, after they went from the bridge, if you will, on the Ethereum side, they bridged over back into Bitcoin. And so that's where a majority of the funds still sit is in the Bitcoin side. From that component, if they then start moving the Bitcoin, then we start having to trace it very quickly and understand like what obfuscation techniques may arise from them utilizing either other swapping services or mixing services and being ready to be able to identify that as a transactional footprint on the blockchain. That last part is kind of amazing. So there's a potential that the attacker may let the funds just sit there for a long period of time, hope people give up, you know, lose interest, basically. Everything cools off and then they may very quickly attempt to move those funds through a series of, say, mixers and counterparties who are are not collecting KYC or something like that in an attempt to ultimately cash out back to, to hard currency. But they're not going to get away with that probably, are they? They're, they're not. We're, we're watching. So <laughs> That's really amazing. I'm sure we have some people out there who are listening that either are you know, members of a DAO or use a DeFi protocol or potentially are, are building. Any advice that you would give to them on how they can kind of hard, harden the platform or protect themselves against an attack like this? Is there, is there any tip or uh, suggestions you would make? Yeah, so there, there's a couple. So one of the biggest challenges of um, integrating into the DeFi space is being able to move from the Web 2 into Web 3. So Web 2, for those that are not necessarily familiar with calling it Web 2, but think of it as like your social media, like Facebook or your Airbnbs, right? It allows you to share a lot of data with a lot of people globally, whereas Web 3 is looking to decentralize that. But you still have to many times call on information from the Web 2 in order to push it into what you're developing on the Web 3. For instance, if you're looking for like trade indexes, you may have to call in the value that you're trying to do for those trade indexes at time. So being able to have a secure way of actually pushing that. And in the Badger DAO incident, we, we were able to see that two-factor authentication was not employed correctly because the API key was issued before it was actually verified or authenticated. And so by having that vulnerability from a Web 2 to a Web 3 application is where that challenge is. There are options to be able to move authentication into on-chain verification as opposed to off-chain verification. To kind of walk through what the off-chain verification is, think of it as when you log into your bank account, you, they typically request you to have like your um, username and password. And then you're also instructed to have a temporary code that's sent to you and you verify that via an authenticator, such as like a Google Authenticate. That then allows you to then prove that you are the individual and you have access to that. If you transition that to like on-chain authentication or verification, you're actually having that verification occur on the blockchain, which then verifies the user with the distributed ledger technology so that all the verification is backed by the protocol and the company can then confirm the 
user or authorization of that. And there are platforms that are actually um, utilizing that type of technology, whether it be through device chipping that goes right into the blockchain. So Beyond Protocol is one of the areas that's actually developing technology so that developers and engineers are issued a chip that can allow them access to integrate with the smart contract. That way the community can see who is um, entrusted to actually make those transaction calls and approve it within the smart contract. So multi-factor hardware-based auth to be able to change the contract at all. Love it. Yeah. Is anybody deploying that today? Um, so I know Beyond Protocol is looking to do that. So they secure the device and then the device can then be integrated within the smart contract. And so if you're then making changes to anything that requires an engineer or developer, the engineer or developer has already authenticated their device to the blockchain smart contract. And so that device is the only way to be able to make changes to any of the application, which then gets rid of that API call utilizing Web2 like Cloudflare. That sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing that rolled out uh, much more widely. I think we'll start to see improving safety and security across the DeFi ecosystem. Beth, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for being on. I, uh, I think we're absolutely going to have to have you back because there's so many more stories that I want to ask about. But for today, let's, uh, let's wrap up. Thanks so much. No, oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly. So if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and share. Here's a mind-blowing number to ponder while you wait on our next episode. Yuga Labs recently launched a new metaverse NFT collection called Other Side. Overwhelming demand drove Ethereum network congestion, resulting in more than 55,000 ETH, worth over $150 million, being spent on transaction fees. And approximately 10,000 transactions failed completely. Disappointing collection hoping to own a piece of the metaverse and costing them each a few ETH. But happily, Yoga Labs has delivered gas fee refunds to users unable to mint. Finally, I hope to see you May 18th and 19th for the Chainalysis Links Conference in New York City. To register, visit the URL linked in the show notes.